Hey everybody, this is Lucas from Coastal Vineyard. Just wanted to say thank you for downloading this podcast or maybe picking up a CD after service. We love you and we are praying for you. We believe that your best days are yet to come. So expect the best. We hope that this message inspires you and moves your faith into action. So sit back and enjoy. Okay. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen. Reading from the New King James Version, Matthew 4 and 18. Are you with me? Are you with me this morning? All right. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Lord God, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for worship. We thank you for communion. Uh, Lord, just for the next few minutes, we ask that um, you come in and just bring life to these scriptures uh, as we talk about discipleship and disciples. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So when I first say the word disciple, discipleship, um, it can be a really scary word for some people. And for some people that... If you've grown up inside of the church, it's a pretty common word. But if you haven't grown up inside of the church, it's almost kind of like, hmm, you know, what what exactly is that? Because it's really only used in the context of the church here in America. In other words, you don't go to corporate office. uh, you 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 don't go to Walmart and sign up to be a disciple. You know, you don't go to Walmart and, you know, what would you like to be, cashier, clerk, greeter, disciple? It's not on the application, you know? So there's all these different kind of thoughts that people have about what is that? (laughs) Yeah, they don't have these thoughts about what exactly is a disciple. So it's really a term used inside of the church. And so there's all these people that maybe haven't grown up, so that they look at the term and they're trying to think, well, exactly what do they mean by being a disciple? And for a lot of people... um, They'll have this in their mind, and I have this picture. You'll probably recognize it. This is The Apprentice, popular television show where Donald Trump gathers all of these would-be people that would kind of go into business or do something for him, and he is supposedly going to teach them, and then they learn from him. And so there's kind of some, sometimes there's this thinking and this thought of maybe a disciple is someone who is learning from a teacher, which is exactly what they do. A disciple is a follower. He is learning from a teacher. But what happens is um, we understand the following part a little here in America, but we kind of mix up the teacher part. In other words, we come to church or, 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 or anything in our life and we say, yeah, Jesus, we will follow you. But often our picture of Jesus and Jesus as the teacher can be a little bit warped. See, with that picture there with the apprentice, there's this idea of there's this one guy that gets to sit in the big chair. You know, could you throw that picture back up there again? You know, he gets the one really big chair. So everyone knows he is the man. 
You know, he, he sits in this chair. No one else is going to sit. He's, he, he's, a, he's a little bit sit, a little bit higher than everybody. And, and so sometimes when we think of, you know, the following teacher relationship, there's this, it's the guy in the big chair, and he knows everything, and he's super smart. And Jesus doesn't take this approach to being the teacher. Jesus doesn't come, and he doesn't, like, flaunt everything, and he doesn't have to have the big chair. As a matter of fact, he's savior of the world, and he's born in a manger, you know, and he's walking among the lowly and the weak, and he calls these people friends. And so there's this kind of picture of what a real teacher is and kind of a picture of a teacher, how we see it in America in our minds, can be a little bit warped of exactly what is the teacher, what is the disciple, what is the follower, what are the roles, how do they play. So that's just kind of one example of here in America how we could kind of take our understanding of this process of discipleship and kind of warp our view. I'd like to show a few different things kind of throughout history and even today with discipleship. And bear with me because, trust me, all of this is going to come around at the end. Um, Another one here is a picture of some samurais. And if you were to go over today, even now, if you were to go over to Asia, to different parts of Japan, China, and you were to mention the word, the word disciple, they would instantly kind of grab hold of that word and know exactly what you're talking about, not just in the church sense, but in the martial arts sense. So if you were to go to any, any uh, dojo, karate, um, taekwondo, anything like that, these guys would know exactly what the disciple is because they're thinking the disciple is the person who is over the dojo, the person that is the... Um, head of the house, I think it's called the, the Soki, the guy that has formulated this either style of fighting or whatever it is, and then teaches his young disciples. And see, in, in ancient Japan, it would be a mark of success would, would be measured on the amount of disciples that you had. So in other words, if you were a fighter and you were to, to be developing this style of fighting, the more disciples that you could bring under you, the more people looked at you like, oh, wow, there's really something to this guy. There's something to uh, what he's doing because look at all of the people that are following him. And then disciples would come and they would learn from, from, the, from the, the head guy, the, what's the, the words, the sensei. Was, how can you forget that word, sensei? They would come and they would learn from Mr. Miyagi, you know? <laughs> Like Danielson and Mr. Miyagi, why can't I think of the word? I'm like, I'm trying to think of this last five minutes. So they would learn, though, and he would teach them. But the young disciple would follow the, I just slipped my mind again. We just said it. Sensei. It's not a, you know, I don't know why. It just can't. Sensei. They would follow the sensei wherever he would go. Whatever he would do, they would follow. They would learn to, to train like he trained. They would eat like he eat, would eat. They would do all of these things. And I'd like to tell you a little story. Uh, when you think about martial arts and you think about all the really cool kickboxing movies and all that stuff, what is like the one thing that pops into your mind, like above the person? Bruce Lee. I mean, he is the man. You do not mess with Bruce Lee. I, got, I found this picture of him. My man was like 0% body fat. I mean... Just like if you touched him, it was just like touching a rock. He was unbelievable. A few things that Bruce Lee was kind of known for doing is he could do a push-up 
with one hand and only two fingers, his thumb and his index finger, and he could do a push-up. Unbelievable. He could take uh, a punching bag, um, a, ki- a punching and kicking bag that weighed 300 pounds. It would be hanging from an eight- or nine-foot ceiling, and he could kick it so hard that the bottom of the bag would hit the ceiling. This is, Bruce Lee, this guy is, you know, he, he probably weighed like 130 pounds or something. Just unbelievable. Well, a little bit about his story is he's growing up, and, and he's back and forth between California and Hong Kong, and he's starting to learn at a very young age, he's starting to learn the martial arts. And somewhere, I think it's around the age uh, 12, but I'm, I, I, can't, I could be wrong. Somewhere around the age 12, he, he's training, and all of a sudden, the kids that he's training with don't want to work with him in, anymore. That Nobody else will fight him. No, they, he just kind of gets like put off to the side. And the reason why is because they had found out that his mother was half white. So he had an uh, Asian father, and his mother was half Asian, half white, and to be training someone that was outside of being an Asian was totally looked down upon. Like, you, you wouldn't do it. And so the, Bruce Lee just kind of, man, nobody, nobody wanted to fight him. He got into trouble, all these different things. He ends up back over in California. He starts his own school. He starts his own uh, dojo. And he's teaching this martial arts to different people. And here's what's really game-changing about it. He starts to take in anybody. He says, it doesn't matter if you're white or black or whoever. You guys come, and I will teach you the style. He believed that it was for everybody. So he's teaching these people. He, and, it, and it just caused all kinds of frustration over here with um, this other group of people that said, no, it's only for, only for Asians. We don't teach this outside of that. And he said, no, it's, it's for everybody. And and next thing you know, he's like, he has all of these disciples, and everyone begins to follow Bruce Lee. And um, little do you know, I know this is going to be a hard shock, but I am a disciple of Bruce Lee. (laughs) I think I've watched enough movies. (laughs) And so one thing that Bruce Lee was also famous for doing, he was famous for doing the coin snatch. If you've seen this on TV, that other people have, have like taken it and put it on different movies and stuff, but Bruce Lee is the one that originated. And what he could do is he could take two coins. He could take a quarter and a nickel, and one person would hold the quarter in their hand, and he would hold the nickel in his hand, and he could snatch it out of your hand and replace it with a nickel before you could even close your hand. And so being the disciple of Bruce Lee I am, I also can do this trick. (laughs) So I would invite anyone here this morning that thinks they are faster than the pastor (laughs) to come up here and watch me perform. Somebody's going to do it. Come on. Somebody. Justin, you're sitting on the front row. That's what happens when you sit on the front row. Actually, if I could get somebody that's like 90 and has arthritis, that would, that would be better. Tim. There you go. No. All right. Oh, burn. Okay. What does this have to do with the sermon? Just, it'll come around. Just trust me, okay? Listen. All right. Quarter nickel. No fancy trick. Okay? All right, you're going to hold your hand straight. Quarter. Okay. Nickel. I'm telling you guys, Bruce Lee, I watched all the movies. Ah! One more time. Can I do one more time? One more time. 
One more time. One more time. Ah! It went flying somewhere. I had it, though. But anyway. Well, the reason why I didn't do it right is because I'm not a true disciple. And that's what you get when you only watch the movies. So, believe it or not, though, I could do it. I used to be like... I did it this morning with Kyle. So, anyway. But... If we were to go over to Japan, you know, talking, talking to these people, this would be their idea of being a disciple. They would come underneath, and they would train, and they would learn, and they would follow. And the thing that the leader, the samurai, the thing that they were teaching the disciples would be taught in such a way that when they fought, they would begin to look like the one who taught them. And so other, they could be fighting other fighters, and all of a sudden, man, that reminds me of his style. Oh, man, he looks a lot like Bruce Lee. So all of a sudden, the disciple begins to look like the di- teacher. So we just say disciple in America. We think one thing, sometimes we could have a problem with a warped view of the teacher. Sometimes we go over to Japan, and we say disciple, and we could think it's just um, exclusive to one certain group of people, to one group that is special. Um... But in the context of the scriptures, Jesus gives us a completely different picture. Now, we have to remember, Jesus is speaking these words in first century Jerusalem, and he is talking to a group of Jews. He's talking to all of these Jewish people, and he's talking to rabbis, and he's talking to all these people, and he begins to say these things about following him and about being a disciple And I would say that it means a little bit different then than what we think it means now. So, a little history with that. The educational system, first century Jerusalem, uh, is kind of like our educational system that we have today. There was three different levels of the school system. There was like the elementary, the middle, and the high school. Now, roughly, now this is a uh, this age group is really argued uh, about with rabbis even today. Roughly, at the age of six. Uh, a young boy would go, and they would begin to study at the local temple, and they would be studying underneath a rabbi, and the rabbi would begin to teach them all of the ways of the Torah. Their primary, the primary focus of learning would be to learn the book of the Torah, the first five books that you know as the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would begin to learn all these books, and not just learn about it, but they would actually memorize the entire text, all five books, starting at the age of six. Can you imagine, at the age of six, beginning to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament? Now, this school was called Bet Sefer. Bet Sefer translated means the... Uh, hold on, let me make sure I give it to you right. The house of the book. Bet effort. the house of the book. And that's what, it's so cool to even think that they would call, you know, they have, they have the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures and they just called it the book. Because remember, there's no printing press. There's no Gutenberg Bible hasn't been printed out yet. There's not thousands of copies out there. It's very rare to have this book of scriptures. And so it was like to have the book 
was an amazing thing, and to be learning from the scriptures was a real privilege. So these kids would go, and they would attend Bet Sefer, uh, six years of age, and they would begin to memorize the entire portion of these scriptures, and this was the main structure of their learning. Now, somewhere at the age of 10, they would enter into what we would call middle school. It would be called Bet Talmud. And at 10 years old, Bet Talmud translates into the house of learning. And so at the house of learning, then they would begin to memorize the rest of the Hebrew text. So what we would call mostly the Old Testament. So at 10 years old, you have memorized the first five books of the Bible, and now you're beginning to memorize the rest of the entire Old Testament. And here, they're not just memorizing it, but then they are taking it and they are transcribing it into their modern language, or not, not their modern tongue, because it was different people that spoke different dialects and different, different towns and just different ways. So they would begin to translate these scriptures and write them down. Ten years old, writing down trans- the entire Old Testament. And what would happen is the teachers would begin to, to, to quiz them on different things and, and, and talk about the scriptures. And they would begin to ask all these questions. But when they asked questions, there was a Hebrew way of learning that isn't how we learn today. So in other words, if I was to ask you a question and say, what is the answer to, um, where in the scriptures would you find in Psalms where it's talking about walking through the valley of the shadow? And then your answer, you would quote back in Psalms 23. You would say, oh, uh, for the Lord is my shepherd I have, shall not want, he leads me beside. And you would, quote that, you would quote it back. You would give the answer to my question. But that's not how it worked in the Hebrew teaching. In the Hebrew teaching, they would ask the question, but the student would respond in the text that was either above or below the answer that the rabbi was looking for. You follow me? Let me give you an example. So like last week, we talked about Jeremiah 29.11. Who knows what Jeremiah 29.11 is? For I know the plans I have for you. So the rabbi would say something like this. Where in the text does it talk about um, having God having a plan for you and plans to prosper you? The young student would then respond back by saying this. He would respond back by saying, Thus saith the Lord, after 70 years are compiled in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work towards you and cause you to return to this place. In other words, his answer seemingly doesn't go along with the rabbi's answer, but it's the verse before or the verse after. And so then the rabbi would know, oh, he, he knows this text. He doesn't know just the answer, but he knows the answer to the verse before and to the verse after. And so this conversation would begin to go back and forth. Could you imagine? And so then the rabbi would say another, and then he would respond, oh. And so you would be listening to this conversation saying, wow, this kid has no idea what he's talking about. Or the answers don't match up with the questions, but he's given the question before. And they would, this conversation would go back and back before it, where the kids would memorize the entire Old Testament. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, that's crazy. That's intense. But um, if you were to go over today, enroll in Jewish seminary, they're doing the exact same thing. Even now today, in Jewish seminary, memorizing the entire text, translating the text. So at this point, if you've got to where you've gone through Bet Sefer, got through Bet Talmud, and you're learning the language, you've, you've memorized these scriptures, now you would get to the age of about 15 years old, 
and you would enter the last stage of the educational system called Bet Midrash. And this point is different from before, because at this point, then you would go up to the rabbi, and you would say, Rabbi, I wish to be your disciple. I want to, I want to follow you. I want to learn from you. I want to, to know your ways. Will you take me on as your disciple? And so at that point, again, the rabbi would begin to question the young uh, Talmudid. And he would say, well, and he would, he would, he would go back with these different, different things from the scriptures and from the text, all, all, all in testing him to wonder, Does, is this young man worthy? Can, can he be my disciple? Does he know the text? Is he worthy? So he would question him. He would ask all these different things. Um, and if, if he did decide that, yes, this young man is worthy, he would now say, okay, come and follow me. Come follow me. At which point that young man would leave everything behind. He would leave his house, his home the way he knew it, mom, dad, everything he owned, and he would go and he would follow this rabbi wherever he led him. And when I say everywhere, I mean everywhere. Anything that the rabbi did, the young disciple was right there, right there at the rabbi's feet, learning from the disciple. Whenever the rabbi would question him, he would not just question him from the, from the scriptures and from the Hebrew text, but he would also question him from his, his own writings, his own writings and his own interpretation of the scriptures. Because this rabbi wanted to know, could this young man represent me whenever I send him out? So I want to know that he has an understanding of the scriptures the way that I interpret them and the way I understand them. And you know what this was called? Back then, this was called taking on the rabbi's yoke. To be able to take on the rabbi's yoke means you were learning underneath that rabbi and you were learning from his interpretation of the scriptures, how he did things. So you begin to learn from him, learn what he was saying, do what he was doing, take on his yoke. Get back to that in a second. But here's what's crazy. What's crazy is that there would be times where the young man would go through all this. He would go up to the rabbi. Rabbi, can I I be your disciple? The rabbi would quiz him. He would do all these things. And the rabbi would look at him and say, no, I'm sorry. You need to go back home. You need to go and work with the family business. Whatever it is that your family came from, whatever it is that you're supposed to do, go be blessed. Young, young, Young child, you know the scriptures well but you cannot be my disciple. You cannot take on my yoke. And he would send them away. So the kids would go through all of this only to get rejected by the rabbi. They would go home. So Jesus shows up on the scene in Matthew chapter 4. He shows up on the scene and he says this to a group of guys that are fishing. And he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting his net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he, and he said to them, follow me. For I will make you fishers immediately. And immediately they let their nets and they followed him. Going there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat to follow the rabbi. 
Rabbi Jesus. So they're out there and they're fishing. And you've got to remember, they have been rejected. They have been told, you are not good enough. And so they're there. And all of a sudden, a rabbi shows up on the scene that says, come and follow me. Essentially, he's saying, you are good enough. There's something about this rabbi that sees something in these men that makes them immediately everything they know to follow him. See, we've been taught that it's just this kind of interaction between Jesus and these two guys that are just out there fishing or, or other men that are just fishing, but there's so much more that's going on. All of a sudden, there's this realization and there's this knowing that, wow, this rabbi thinks that I can be like him. He thinks that I'm good enough. And then Jesus says something like this, come and follow me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He said, I know you tried to take on the yoke of other men. I know you tried to live by all their rules and they said you weren't good enough, but I think you are. And I think you can do it. I believe in you. Come and follow me. When Jesus says that in the context of that day, it meant a little something different. It meant that, wow, here is a rabbi that thinks I'm good enough. Here is a rabbi that believes that I can be just like him. And he's not sitting in this really big fancy chair. And he's not flaunting it all over the right. He's just going and, and he's calling, come and follow me. And I just imagine this moment being there on the boat. And what's really, what's really interesting uh, to me is, um, what's his name? Uh, Zebedee, the father. He's there with the sons and they're mending nets. They're working like it's a work day. And all of a sudden, come follow me. And the boy is just like, peace out, dad. <laughs> and so Zebedee's like, dude, still, oh, but I could just imagine, I could just imagine Zebedee walking in to town the next day, his chest is a little poked out, guys, y'all hear about what happened to my boys, yeah, rabbi came to town, said said they were good enough, yeah, just proud dad, because this is a huge thing. It's okay that they left me hanging out there doing all the work by myself because a rabbi came to town. A rabbi thinks that they're good enough. A rabbi thinks that they can be just like him. Now, there was a common thing back then about people that would follow the rabbis. It was a kind of a traditional saying there in first century Jerusalem uh, because remember, these, these disciples were following the rabbi everywhere they went. And for a disciple, for a rabbi to come to your town, it wasn't just like rabbi as we think of them today, as, you know, they're the really big beard and they're just kind of boring guys that talk like this. No, rabbis were exciting. Rabbis were like the coolest thing ever because they came to town. There was this, there was this energy. They mixed things up. They were preaching from the word. People were be, be getting to 
getting to hear all of these stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they would teach from the scriptures, and they would sit around campfires. So to hear stories from the rabbi was just an amazing thing. So for the rabbi to come to town, oh, wow, this is awesome. This is huge. And all of a sudden, here comes the rabbi, and he would be leading the pack, and he would be walking down these dusty roads, and there goes all of his disciples following close behind him. And the people would look, and the people would say, those are his disciples because they are covered with the dust from the rabbi's feet. How close are we following Jesus? Are we so close that his dust is getting all over us? Are we covered with the dust of the rabbi's feet? Because that was the mark of a disciple back then. To follow him wherever he went, no matter what. Good times, bad times, up, down, going for a jog, going for a stroll. Are you covered with the dust of your rabbi's feet? To follow Jesus is to leave everything. When Jesus comes and he says, come and follow me, it means he wants it all. Those of you that would call yourself disciples must leave mother, brother, father, wife, business, and follow me. And Jesus makes no apologies about this. He's basically saying it's going to cost you everything. To be a disciple, there is a cost. There is a A yoke, but his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Are you dusty this morning? It comes from one of two ways. It comes from following close or from sitting stagnant. And by looking sometimes, they could look exactly the same. But I'll leave that for next week. Lord, we thank you this morning. We thank you that as we were walking and fishing and mending nets and working our jobs, that you came and you thought that we were good enough. When the world told us that we wouldn't amount to anything, you told us that we were good enough. When we tried to take on someone else's yoke and it just brought us down and it weighed our hearts and it was an expectation that we couldn't live up to, Lord, you brought your yoke. And it's easy and it's light and you made a way. Lord, I thank you that you believe that it's possible for us to look just like you. Lord, I thank you that you're not sitting back in that big red chair, Lord, but that you came from heaven to earth and you showed me what it was like to be the good teacher. Help me to be a good follower. 
Lord, I thank you that you've opened it up to everyone. That all can learn from you, not just a select few. Lord, I thank you that we can be just like you. Lord, my prayer over this next few weeks as we talk about being disciples and making disciples, God, that you would just breathe new life on us. Breathe your spirit into our hearts. Lord, that we would follow so close to you that we would be covered from the dust of your feet. In Jesus' name I pray. This has been a presentation of Coastal Vineyard Church, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information on who we are and how you can support future podcasts, visit us on the web at www.coastalvineyard.org. Come to the